May we bow together in prayer as we go into God's Word this morning. May we pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for the privilege of prayer. We ask this morning that the Holy Spirit would take those beautiful songs, make them real in our hearts, and may the theme of our song and of our life be Jesus. Bless those who are in trouble today and those who are having difficult times and some whose hearts are very heavy because of the loss of loved ones and others who are sick. Watch over them. We're grateful for the evidence of God's hand of healing upon those we've prayed for. And we ask that thou wilt continue that good work. And now, Father, <clears throat> may the Holy Spirit make the Word of God become alive and sharp and quick and powerful. We pray that everybody here will just turn his eyes toward the Lord. If there's one person within the sound of our voice who has never been saved, may that one come to Jesus today. We ask for the Holy Spirit to do His work in Christ's name. Amen. I want to speak this morning on the force that never fails or the greatest force in the world. What is the force that never fails or the greatest force in the world? <clears throat> when I was a boy, we didn't have all the modern mechanisms that we have today and little toys that have all kinds of motors in them. We made our own motors. Did you ever make a motor out of a rubber band? And you wind it all up and you, it has a propeller, you know. Now you're either going to run a car with it or an airplane or something and, and you wind it all up and then you, 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 you have a little switch and then you turn that switch and the little propeller begins to whiz around as the rubber band unfolds and that thing takes off. Well, there was a time when that was the mightiest force I ever saw. And then there was a little bit later, we had an old Model A Ford that I learned to drive on and you had to crank it. Now, I don't know whether any of you have had any, any experience with cranking an old car, but you go out in front and you crank and you crank and you crank. And you have to be very, very careful because that thing could fly back and really, really wound you, you know. But you crank it and crank it and crank it, and finally you crank it to the point where it starts. And that thing has all kinds of force and power. And I thought that was pretty powerful. And then my dad spent 40 years on the railroad. And I used to go on the trains with him. And I'd get on the, that big engine, the old steam engine, and uh, the fireman would let me shovel coal into the steam pit. And I'll tell you, that train would just take off. And one time, I, I hope the l &N officials are not listening because they couldn't do much about it now, I guess. But that engineer cooperated with my dad in letting me get on the cow catcher out on the front end of that train. And I rode from, from uh, Crestwood to Eminence on the old short line uh, on that train on the cow catcher. And man, I had a good time. And I thought that's the most powerful force in the world. Well, what is the force that never fails? We can think of a lot of force, a lot of power. We think today of the atomic power and the hydrogen power because we live in an age 
the hydrogen age, the atomic age, and the space age. And we think of that power, the force of it. We have not had any demonstrations of that in the last few years, but years ago when, we, when I was in university and, and uh, then the years following that in the 60s, we would see those mushroom clouds. You've seen pictures of them. I don't think we're having any explosions now and we're not having any demonstrations of that, but that power would be so immense it would uh, go up and become a mushroom up there. And my, the power, the force. They say that 100,000 people died at Hiroshima when that powerful force was dropped at the end of World War II. And thousands of others were wounded and have never gotten over that awful power force. What is the strongest force in the world? Some have suggested that prayer is the strongest force in the world. Well, I know prayer is powerful. We've just begun to tap the resources of the effectiveness and power of prayer. Frank Lubbock wrote a book called The Greatest Power in the World. He called it prayer. And prayer is certainly powerful. God has three answers to prayer, yes, no and wait and sometimes our prayer can get all mixed up and we pray selfishly and we don't get the answers to our prayers sometimes we pray amiss and we ask for things that don't honor the Lord prayer is not the mightiest force in the universe others have thought faith is the greatest force in the universe Jesus said if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be thou removed, and it will be removed. Certainly, faith is the victory. And we need to be men of faith. And the entire 11th chapter of Hebrews was written about the power of faith. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Sarah. By faith, Moses. By faith, Barak, and Deborah, and Samuel, and on and on men of faith and without faith it is impossible to please God he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him but if we want to find the greatest force in the universe the force that never fails you remember that faith passes away and hope passes away but there's something that never fails Turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. Paul, writing to the Corinthian Christians, says, I show you a more excellent way. 1 Corinthians 13, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling symbol. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Love suffereth long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not its own, 
is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Love never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall be done away. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Somebody said, it's love, it's love, it's love that makes the world go round. Love never fails. I want you to notice in this section, in this chapter, and you might want to note these or write them in your Bible or write them on a piece of paper. The primacy of love, the portrait of love, and the power of love. For love never fails. The mightiest force in the universe, the force that never fails, is love. Somebody said you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Miss Browning used to say, he who says, I used to love, lies. For if you once loved, you always love. Somebody came to Dr. Lee one day and said, well, I used to love my wife. I don't love her anymore. I want a divorce. He said, you're lying. He said, what do you mean I'm lying? Dr. Lee quoted to that man what Browning said. He who says he used to love lies. Dr. Lee said, you never did really love her, did you? He said, well, I guess you're right. Love never fails. Now, there are three words that we translate love in the English language out of the Greek. Eros, phileo, and agape. Eros is a physical attraction between men and women. Phileo is that fellowship kind of love where we enjoy doing things with one another. Men have that kind of love for men, and women have that kind of love for women, and women have that kind of love for men, and men for women. A fellowship kind of love in which you enjoy doing things with each other. Phileo, fellowship. The third word is agapao, agape, which is God's love. It is the free flowing of one's life into the other, expecting nothing in return. That's the love that never fails. Now, there are three kinds of love. Physical, fellowship, and spiritual. 
Many people try to build their marriages on physical love, and it fails. And then when you preach on love never fails, they say, wait a minute, preacher, my love failed. Well, the kind of love you had was eros, and that fails. It's only skin deep. After a while, it doesn't endure very long. And if your marriage or your relationship is built just on eros, it may not endure. That's one of the great problems of young people today. Not realizing that eros is not the main ingredient of a marriage, they build what they call their love life just on eros. They have live-ins, and after a while they decide, well, I guess we still love each other, we'll just get married, and it's all based on eros. And in a few months or a year or so, that eros has run thin, and they say, I don't love you anymore. I just don't love you anymore. What they mean is I don't have that eros. It's not as exciting as it used to be. There's a second ingredient for a marriage that will last, and that's phileo. There certainly has to be the eros. <clears throat> a man has to be drawn and attracted to a woman. A woman has to be drawn and attracted to a man. But in addition to that, there's that phileo where you enjoy doing things together. You enjoy being together. Not just hugging and kissing, but you enjoy reading together, working together, walking together, going in the woods together, looking at the fall trees and leaves together, going skiing in the snow together, going out boating together. You enjoy doing things together. But even those two could fail. You've known people you one time had fellowship with and somehow the fellowship is broken and it's not there anymore. And the love that you thought was real, somehow it didn't endure. There's a third ingredient and that's agapao, God's love, agape. That's the kind of love that pours its life into another expecting nothing in return. And that kind of love, the Bible says, never fails. And when <clears throat> a young man and a young woman have that kind of love that's eros and phileo and agape, and it all lines up on the same person, you have the kind of relationship that can endure and last. You build a bridge out of just some wood. It might hold a little Volkswagen up. That Volkswagen goes back and forth over that wooden bridge and it's okay. It might even hold a Ford up. And it might even hold an Oldsmobile. But then when you start getting a Buick or a Cadillac on it, it strains it. But you run one of those semis out over that wooden bridge. That's right. It just, blah, it crumbles in. You build your marriage out of eros, 
it may endure a little while. You build it out of eros and phileo, and it'll endure a little bit longer. But you mix in it the ingredient of agape, and you have something that will hold that bridge of life up. That's like the steel superstructure that goes into building a great bridge. Now Paul, recognizing that, gives this whole chapter. He has been speaking of the spiritual gifts, and he says, I want to show you a more excellent way, the way of agape, the way of love. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. If I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. When we think of the primacy of love, love is compared to the eight verities that are generally accepted as, wit as those that are valuable or vital. He speaks of the tongues of men, eloquence, the tongues of angels, prophecy and preaching, understanding mysteries, knowledge, faith, benevolence, charity, sacrifice. All of these are good, but Paul says they all vanish away. They all fail. They'll all be done away with one day. But love never fails. Love surpasses these. These others are weighed in the balance and found wanting, but love never fails. Well, what Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that, lo knoweth, he that loveth know not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's a verse in the Bible that says, Thou, God, seest us. I like this story. The biographer of Bishop Walls of Ditchfield relates that when he was a child one day in the home of an old woman, she asked him to read that for framed text. It said, Thou, God, seest me. Then she said, when you're older, people will tell you that God is always watching you. He's always watching you to see what kind of sins you commit and where you get off the, off the straight and narrow so God can jump down your throat and God can punish you. She said, I don't want you to think of it like that. She said, you take this verse home, put it in your room, and every time you look at it, let it remind you that God loves you so much He can't keep His eyes off of you. Thou, God, seest me. Secondly, in this chapter, we see not only the primacy of love, but the portrait of love. In verses 14, uh, 4 to 8, there are 16 characteristics of love mentioned. Listen to them. Number one, love is patient. The word there is makrothumin. Makrothumin. 
It means patience with people, not circumstances. It describes the man who is wronged and he has the opportunity to get even, but he doesn't do it. Have you ever had that kind of opportunity? I'm not going to ask you how many have been wronged because that's unanimous. Everybody's been wronged. How many of us have had opportunity to, to get even with somebody and then we applied the principle of God's love and we didn't do it? An illustration of that is when Saul was pursuing David, wanted to kill him. And Saul went into a cave. He didn't know that David was camping on top of that cave. And David came down in the night. And Joab, Saul's chief of captains and chief of staff, was asleep. And David went up and got his sword, got Saul's sword, and cut a piece of his clothing off and left. And then he called back and said, King Saul, where's your sword? King Saul woke up, looked around for his sword, but he couldn't find it. David had opportunity to get even with Saul, but he didn't do it. That's love. Stanton, Stanton, you know that name. Stanton called Abraham Lincoln a low, cunning clown the original gorilla. He hated him. When Lincoln was running for office, Stanton stumped against him. He did everything he could. He called him every vile name imaginable. And when Abraham Lincoln was elected president, Lincoln had never said anything about Stanton. Instead, he called him in one day and he says, I want you to be my secretary of war. And Stanton was shocked. He said, but, uh, but, uh, but, but Mr. Lincoln, I've said everything against you imaginable. Yes, I want you to be Secretary of War. It's not because you like me so much, but you're the best man for the job. I want you to be Secretary of War. The night of the assassination, Stanton was with Mr. Lincoln. And when that bullet went into his brain, and they carried Lincoln across the street, Stanton was there. He said, there lies the greatest leader of men I ever knew. Now he belongs to the ages. That's an illustration. Love is patient. Agape is patient. The second characteristic, love is kind. in its original form, that means love is sweet to all. Philip II of Spain was religious, but he founded the Spanish Inquisition, and he thought he was doing God a favor when he put to death all that he called heretics. Again, the third characteristic, love is not envious. There are two classes of people in the world. There are millionaires and those who would like to be. And sometimes those who would like to be are jealous and envious of those who are millionaires. But love has no place for that. Love says, 
thank God for that man who made his millions. Maybe the Lord will let me do it too. But love doesn't try to pull that man down to his level. Fourthly, love vaunteth not itself, is not a braggart. There is self-effacing quality in real love. Somebody said, the real lover cannot get over the wonder that he is loved. You think of that. One of the reasons Jesus was never understood is because he did not boast. He never went around telling everybody, I'm God. Well, I can do anything. Watch me. I'll make miracles and I'll make this stone a piece of bread and I'll do all kinds of things. Jesus never did that. Listen, friend, if you find yourself bragging or talking a lot or bragging on your own accomplishments, it's probably to cover up your own insecurity. Wise is that individual who learns from this lesson that love is not a braggart. Fifthly, love is not puffed up. It is not a it is not overinflated with its own importance. William Carey translated the Bible into 34 Indian languages. You think of that. One day he was sitting at dinner with a skeptic and a snob. And this snobbish skeptic said right in front of everybody so everybody could hear it, well, Mr. Mr. Carey, I guess you used to be a shoemaker. Oh, no, Mr. Carey said, I was just a cobbler. I didn't make the shoes, I just mended them. He accepted his place of humility. That's what love is. Love is never puffed up. Sixthly, love does not behave itself unseemly, without grace or dignity. When Jesus was on trial, He quietly was like a lamb before her sharers is dumb. He opened not his mouth. Seventhly, love seeketh not her own, <clears throat> not insistence on its own rights. When Jesus was on the cross, he could have called 10,000 angels, the song says, he could have called legions of angels and God would have sent them just at his beckon. But Jesus did not seek his own. He sought what was best for you and me. Eighthly, love is not easily provoked. It never flies into a temper tantrum. Ninthly, love thinketh no evil. The word there is logos heshthai, which is an accountant's word. Love does not store up the meaning of any wrong it has received and keep on thinking about it. Do you do that? Do we do that? Boy, I got wronged. Mr. So-and-so, Miss So-and-so, man, they said some ugly things. They said some ugly things. And so we store all that up and we hide in our hearts and we allow all that to fester. Love doesn't do that. Tenthly, love rejoices not in iniquity. Love finds no pleasure in evil doing. Human nature does. There's something about our old Adamic nature that likes the illicit. 
That's the reason we have women cheating on their husbands. That's the reason we have men cheating on their wives. They don't want anybody to know it. There's something about the illicit, the undercover thing that we enjoy. It flatters our ego. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Love rejoices in the truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Twelfthly, love bears all things. Love can endure anything. Agape can endure anything. Thirteenth, love believes all things. It is completely trustworthy. It takes God at His word. It takes man at His word. Listen, I hope I get through this morning. You just bear with me. I have some things that are important to say. I pray <clears throat> that God will not permit us as individual Christians to become suspicious. We need to take one another at His word. Now, if a person tells us something that is not true, God takes care of that. God deals with it. But person, an individual Christian can get so hurt in life that after a while he no longer believes his fellow man. He no longer believes people. Love doesn't do that. Love believes. And in the marriage relationship, there are lots of times when divorce is built on nothing more than suspicion and jealousy because one somehow reads into his partner or her partner some of his own or her own problems and sins and he assumes or supposes that the other partner is doing the same thing and he needles and needles and needles and needles and needles until there is no longer any kind of trust there. Love believes all things. Love, fourteenthly, hopes all things. Love never ceases to hope. Adam Clark was a great theologian, but when he was a boy, listen to this, some of you students, when he was a boy, his teacher said, you're the stupidest boy in this school. <laughs> You ever been told that? You're stupid. You don't, you can't even pass a test. That's what they said to Adam Clark. And there was a visitor in that school one day and, and he heard the teacher say that and he took Adam Clark aside and he said, listen, young man, I see a lot of hope in you. I see a lot of value in you. You just keep studying, keep plugging away. Don't give up. And Adam Clark became one of the great theologians of another generation. Number 17, number 15, love endures all things. Love bears anything with triumphant faith. It conquers. We're more than conquerors through him that loved us. An atheist challenged God. <laughs> he said, I don't believe there's any God. If there was really a God, let him strike me dead in five minutes. And he stood there five minutes and he said, see there, God didn't strike me dead. And some old woman got up in the crowd and said, Sir, do you have any children? Oh, yes, I've got three children. Suppose you would give a knife to your son and say, Son, 
If I'm real, you strike me dead. Would your son do that? I said, I, I hope not. I hope my son loves me too much. He said, the woman said, that's the way with God. God loves you too much to strike you dead. You see, God loves the just and the unjust. And these silly laws, silly duels that men have with God and they stand up and dare God to strike them with lightning or to do something silly. First of all, I'd be very careful about doing that. God may one day just demonstrate his power. But usually God won't do that because he loves you too much. Last of all, God's uh, love never fails. Somebody said God loves good boys. But a Sunday school teacher came along one day and said, listen, God loves naughty boys. He has to have a lot more love to love you than he has to love the good boys. God loves. How much do you love? Sometimes parents will ask their children, how much do you love? And the response, a bushel and a peck, and a kiss and a hug. But if you ask God how much do you love, he points to the cross. And he says, there is how much I love. I poured out my love for you at the cross. And when Jesus went to Calvary's cruel cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. And the love of God was demonstrated in Jesus. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the mercy seat, the blood covering for our sins. And it was that agape love that never fails. Listen, friend, you may have spit on it. You may have ridiculed. You may have been a skeptic. You may have said, God doesn't love me. You may have gone on in your sins. But there's not one person within the sound of my voice today who has gone so far away from God but that God's love will reach you. For the blood is the symbol of God's love. And when that blood trickled down the old cross, it formed a pool of blood at the foot of the cross that sinners plunged beneath that blood should lose all their guilty stains. All their guilty stains, every one of them, can be washed in the blood and God's love will fill your life and your heart. Come to him today with your old tattered garments, your old rags, and let his love fill you. And then in turn, ask him to let that love reach out to others. May we pray. Our heads bowed and eyes closed for just a moment. <laughs> Our Father, we thank you for the love of God. We thank you for that glorious love that never fails. We pray that someone within the sound of our voice today would get in on that love. Just come and say, Jesus, I want to yield my life to thee. I want to fall in love with the Lord and I want God's love to flow through my life. And I want to yield my life to thee. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing God's invitation. This is his invitation. It isn't mine. It isn't the church's. It's the Lord's. 
And I want to ask you to do this. If you're not satisfied with the way you've loved, ask God to do something about it in your life. Now the Holy Spirit can apply that. It may mean you're not satisfied with the way you and your husband have loved each other. It may mean you're not satisfied with the way you've shown God's love to other people. It may mean that you have felt alienated from God's love because of sin. And you want to come and say, Lord, I yield my life to Thee. Whatever God's Holy Spirit says to your heart, do it. Do it without delay. May we stand as we sing. What song? Number 249, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. I want to ask everybody to sing this this morning, 249. You're singing from your heart. Please let Jesus have his way with you this morning, whatever it means, and come responding to God's invitation. If you've already been saved, come and let it be known publicly. If you've never been saved, come responding to God's invitation. And if you're not sure how, let us pray with you here at the front and show you from the Bible how to give your heart to Christ. If your membership is in some other church and God wants you at Glendale, come today and help to build a strong soul-winning church at this place. And friend, if you're not satisfied with your love, do something about it. You may not need to come forward, but right where you are. Just make some resolutions and decisions and do what God tells you to do. While we sing, will you come?